Hey, Three Crosses family, welcome back to the Going Deeper podcast. Today, we are in our Your Invited series. We're going to be going over Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 to 13. We've got a great conversation in store for you guys. And so, with that, let's go deeper. Well, after two guest speakers joining us back in the podcast studio, this is none other than Pastor Danny Strange. Pastor Danny, welcome back to the hot seat. Thanks for having me back. It's always good to have you in this uh, conversation. And so you gave us a message on Matthew 9, verses 9 to 13. So we're going to jump right in here. Starting in verse 9, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. Man, there's a lot of questions. Even in this opening scene, I know it just assumes that you know where there is. Jesus went on from there. So uh, the first question, if you're a longtime listener, is going to be about the context. Matthew 9, we're jumping about, you know, maybe a quarter of the way into the book of Matthew. So what's been going on in the book of Matthew? And help us understand who Matthew is, because I think... One of the things about Matthew that helps us understand this situation in particular is that he is a tax collector. Now, there's something unique about tax collecting in the first century. So give us a little bit of a history lesson here. What did it mean for Matthew to be a tax collector and then be called to follow Jesus and him getting up and leaving everything? Yeah, so it's interesting because Matthew is called here into ministry, Matthew chapter 9, which just by looking at the number 9, we realize it's pretty far into the book of Matthew. Uh, He has called a couple other disciples early on in the book, and then as we read through the narrative of Matthew's gospel, we see that Jesus has done some pretty significant things already in the first nine chapters of this book. He has called disciples. I mentioned that. We've seen Matthew establish who he is and where he came from and why he's significant as a messianic figure. He did the big teaching, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. We learned he has a different interpretation of the law than the religious leaders of his day. And then the last chapter or two, he's really just been traveling around the Galilee region doing miracles, uh, healing demonic people, calming the storm, these significant things. So Matthew, the author, has been drumming up this idea that Jesus is a significant, different, amazing, messianic figure for the Jewish people, and now he encounters Levi, or Matthew, right, the man who wrote this book. He encounters him as a tax collector, and so all of the... All of the knowledge we have about the identity of Jesus is is packed into this this simple command, come and follow me, right? Follow after me, come after me. And we see this tax collector who, if we were Jewish religious people of the time, we should all boo when we hear the phrase (laughs) tax collector. Now this Jesus who has done such amazing things, established himself as so powerful, we see that he is God in human flesh. Now he's even calling a sinner like a tax collector to join his entourage. And so it's not... Right? This is not Jesus in Matthew 1 before we know who he is and what he's doing. This is Jesus in full knowledge and with our full knowledge of his identity, calling a sinner like Matthew to be part of his disciples, to be part of his crew. You titled the message, uh, Befriending Questionable People. And I love how Matthew 9 in this scene in particular is wrapped up in those miracles because I, I, you listed a bunch of people that you know were called to befriend. And I'm like, man, 
it's probably going to take a miracle for some of these friendships to form. And, you know, maybe this is uh, sort of in that context, in that vein of, man, this is so incredible that Jesus is calling a tax collector. So we go into verses 10 and 11 to see this interaction between Jesus and Matthew. It says, while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? You know, we were talking in the teaching team, just could you imagine being a fly on the wall at that party? You know, what was Jesus doing? Was he fitting in? Was What was his interaction with all these collection of tax collectors and sinners? And I love the tension that you drew out in the sermon. And I wanted to ask if we could um, sit in it for a little bit, because I know this was uh, something that came up in our conversations early on. Uh, It's just the tension between how Christians interact with people outside of the church. And so on one end of the spectrum, Christians tend to feel like they need to sacrifice their prior relationships so that they can engage in different things, which are good in the church. And yet so often when people become Christians, they alienate the people that they were friends with. And it's like, Hey, why did, why did you just abandon me for, you know, these, these people? And so there's like this level of, of sacrificing those friends for something else. But then on the other side of the spectrum here, um, of engaging other people, it seems like Christians might have this unhealthy participation going on with people that are sinners. You know, maybe they're not living a distinct set apart life and they're engaging in a lot of these activities. So I'm wondering if that, if those are the two ends of the spectrum, um, you know, me personally, I tend to resonate with, I have a hard time thinking of non-Christian friends. And so I ask myself, have I sacrificed? So could you speak to both ends of the spectrum and how do we find that middle ground, that, that third way, that Jesus way, um, for both of those ends. Yeah. It's interesting. As you talk about that, I picture that kind of the black and white, two sides of the coin, two types of people I meet with in my office. I think of people like you described yourself, which is many Christian people in the church who, yeah, if we're talking about reaching out or connecting with folks who are far from God, they might say, Hey, I don't know anybody. Their primary affiliation is Christianity. Their primary family is the family of God. Their primary community is the Christian community. And, and so that's a struggle that a lot of Christians have because they've sacrificed a relationship with the world in so many ways to enter into a relationship with God and his people. And there's such a different community. The longer you walk with Christ, the more you feel like, okay, these are my people. Those are no longer my people, the people of the world. And so that's one group. Uh, the, the other group of folks I talk to in my office, and honestly, most of the time I'm talking to these folks, I'm wondering if they're actually believers in Jesus, because as we're talking about their struggles, as we're talking about kind of their life and where they're at with God, it feels like they still have one or one and a half in a sense feet in the world and they haven't fully stepped into the body life of the church yet. And so they'll talk about, Hey, who do you know here at the church? Oh, I don't really know anybody. Oh, Hey, do you have any relationships? Oh, I did a small group one time, but most of my friends are friends at work or I hang out with my friends from my neighborhood or whatever it is. And it's like, they're still living their old life. And it almost feels like as I'm talking to those folks, a healthy step for them is almost to disconnect, sacrifice in a sense, some of those relationships to truly enter into the body life of the church, this different place. And so if those folks did what you, AJ, have done, they would find themselves now in this place where they're saying, well, I don't even know any non-believers anymore. And 
So it almost feels like the prescription we can get from a text like this has to go both ways, that to enter into faith, part of becoming a Christian is becoming part of this covenant community. There's covenant language even in this passage, well, what we're talking about today. Uh, and so part of it is separating yourself out from the world and finding your primary fellowship, connection, relationships, life-giving kind of vulnerability within the Christian community. These are your people. But then it's almost like missionaries, we need to journey back out again and figure out how do I step into a new kind of relationship with the world outside the doors or outside the family of the church, uh, like Jesus did, and enter into relationships in this missionary sense or uh, in a an outreach kind of sense that, okay, God has sent Jesus to come and save sinners. I need to go out from this family and go do the ministry, the work of God as well. And so it almost feels like there are some people who need to be called out of the world, like to sacrifice that, but then to re-enter back into the world. And some of us who've already stepped out of the world need to go back into it again. So it almost seems like we're called both directions to continually find our primary affiliation within the church and even sacrifice at times relationships for that but also to always being being sent by God, like we see in Romans, right? How will these people know unless they hear? And how will they hear unless someone is sent? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news? So I kind of feel like there's these two callings away and back to that we all need to experience both of them. I love the uh, Luke 529 twist that you threw into the sermon there. Uh, and Luke 5 is uh, another account of the same uh, calling of Matthew. And uh, Luke 529 specifies what happens uh, where Matthew says, while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, Luke 5 says this, and Levi made him, Jesus, a great feast in his own house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And you brought out that, hey, it was actually Matthew who invited Jesus to recline at the table with them and, and sort of be this guest of honor type of person. And I love that twist because, man, th- we've been talking about you're invited to go out and now you're receiving the invite and you're invited to come in to these uh, to the lives of many sinners. And so... I want to step into the shoes of the Pharisees for a second uh, who are watching this party. And I've always been fascinated by the Pharisees because those are the religious people. Those are the people that have been ingrained in the Hebrew scriptures and they're trying to figure out uh, what's going on with this Jesus character. And they see this party. They see Jesus reclining at the table with the tax collectors and they start accusing him of all sorts of things. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Later in Matthew 11, it says, you know, he's a glutton, he's a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors. And so what is the motivating factor for the Pharisees here? Why are they so uptight about who this Jesus character affiliates with? I think we need to be honest that what Jesus is doing looks a lot like hypocrisy. You know, if you think about people in the world who it's come out later that they're not really who they claim to be. You know, you listen to podcasts that expose different church movements or big, powerful evangelical characters. A lot of times the episodes of the podcast will focus in on this amazing Christian character who led this Christian university. And now we have photos of him at a party, right? And there's 
bad substances happening and there's photos coming out of him and this woman or him and this friend or whatever it is. And it's like, we knew it, right? This person claimed to be a Christian, but behind the scenes, he was living a party lifestyle. He was an abuser of substances. He was a, a whiner and diner of women and of a friend of questionable people. We knew it. This person's a hypocrite. They're not really who they looked like on the surface, right? And when we talk about integrity, we talk about who you should be if you're a Christian leader on the stage is the same person you should be behind closed doors. And so religious leaders coming upon Jesus at a questionable scene like this almost feels like paparazzi showing up, which they were probably delighted to show up there. Paparazzi <laughs> showing up to expose that this religious leader who claims to be the Messiah, claims to be the Holy One is actually someone who's living a double life and he's hanging out with all these tax collectors at this party where, you know, who knows what is happening? And honestly, who knows what is happening? Um, but it almost feels like an expose moment. And I think it would feel like that today. It, you know, I think we've got to try to put ourselves in the shoes of the of the first century. You know, I think for myself, where would I be if someone in the church showed up and took a picture and posted on Instagram? And I was like, we knew it, Danny. I don't know if you'd say we knew it, but Danny, <laughs> right? Danny's a hypocrite. Danny was at this place. Can right. you believe he was there? This is the kind of place Jesus was. And so I think if we're going to give empathy to the religious leaders, they're in a sense, they've been trying to catch him in a trap, but they're in a sense catching him in a place where, where a religious leader like Jesus would not want to be caught most of the time because it's a place that easily smells like you're living a double life. Yeah, I think it's so fascinating, the idea of you know people immediately coming to assumptions based on where you're at and you know at the time dining with them meant you're accepting them and you know you could make that connection, but Jesus has got this whole other mission going on. And uh, just want to lighten the mood with a, a little, <laughs> little silly question here because uh, I noticed that a lot of what Jesus is doing um, comes at like dinner tables, it comes at feasts, and he, he's sitting down with a lot of people. He's engaging with them. And here we see him having dinner with tax collectors and sinners. Um, and you would think with somebody with this religious stature, with this claim to be the Messiah, man, the place where he would do ministry is uh, the stage or, you know, he would constantly be come back to the Sermon on the Mount uh, next time. But it's in houses. It's in it's at dinners. Is there something to glean from these meals, the, these mundane meals uh, as Christians, as followers of Jesus? I think the meal aspect is I mean, meals in, in our culture, but even more in, in that culture were these sacred events where you know, the people that you share table fellowship with was a, a different level of intimacy uh, than someone else, right? We understand that even like at a silly level where, you know, if you're you say you're a, a, and on the dating scene and you want to meet somebody, if you want to show them it's not a date, right? You're probably not going to go to some romantic dinner somewhere. You'll, you know, hey, yeah, sure. Let's, uh, let's meet at my office or whatever. Let's have a casual conversation. If you want right. to like test the waters, hey, let's meet for a coffee, right? That feels like a, an acquaintance that could become more kind of set up. If you're going to reach out to somebody and say, hey, could you and I have dinner together sometime? That feels like an invitation <laughs> yeah. into a more intimate level of relationship. Sure. And the same thing's true, right? It's like if, you know, you and I go out, grab a cup of coffee, that's fun. But it's like, hey, if you and I go out to dinner somewhere, it's a, it's like a longer conversation. It's a deeper conversation. Um, that has a problematic sides as well, like for a Jesus who is entering into these more intimate settings with people who are questionable people, right? And so, uh, 
you know, I think of First Corinthians 5, which Paul talks about the fact that uh, we should not associate with questionable people. Right. And it, But then he says, listen, I'm not saying you shouldn't associate with, with worldly people. Then we'd have to take ourselves out of the world. But he's saying if anyone who calls themselves a believer but is engaged in these practices, these sinful practices, he says you shouldn't even eat with that kind of person, right? Like that's too much of an intimate relationship with that kind of person. So even Paul, in telling us not to go and dine with hypocrites, Christian hypocrites, uh, he's saying, listen, remember, table fellow is an intimate thing that's reserved uh, for people that you're in true relationship with. And so Jesus entering into table fellowship, right? Like you said, he's reclining at the table. He's not standing over in the corner looking on judgingly. He's not looking awkward, pacing back and forth, feeling like I don't belong in this. I need to get out of here. He's right in the middle of the party, right? right, right. At the table when the Instagram photo is taken. Uh, and so Jesus is in a posture of intimacy in relationship, even friendship relationship with these people that the Jewish believers uh, or the Jewish people in those days would say, you're not supposed to go into the house of that type of person. You should not eat with them. Honestly, you should not even associate with them at any level. But to go to the table fellowship level, the most intimate of human uh, friendship connection, that's wildly inappropriate and out of bounds. Jesus responds with three different uh, sentences that we'll end the episode on just by unpacking each of these three responses. And so in verse 12... It says, on hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. So we've been talking a lot about neighboring and uh, reaching out to questionable people. And uh, this leads me to my skeptic question. Yes. <laughs> uh, we still haven't found a soundbite for that, I unfortunately. I can't wait till that soundbite shows up. We'll have to talk to somebody. Um, but... The one thing that I feel like we haven't talked about, and if you've read Dave Runyon's book already that we uh, talked about, The Art of Neighboring, uh, it talks a little bit about this. But the question I wanted to ask is, as we're dealing with um, what Jesus would call the sick or these sinners and tax collectors, the question that comes to mind is, is there a boundary? Is there a line that we should draw? And when should that be? Uh, you know, Because it feels like Jesus is really challenging us to get out of our comfort zones and really befriend legitimately questionable people. But I wonder, is there a time where it's like, hey, this person, you know, is, is there too a questionable? Yeah. yeah. Is there, is there too, such a thing as too questionable in the economy of Jesus? Yeah. I don't, I mean, I'm sure there is. And the, my skeptics response as I'm thinking is, you know what? I think most of us are so bad at this. We're not even getting invited to dinner at our upstanding neighbor neighbor's next door house. We're probably not getting invited over by the drug dealer down the street, you know, like, because part <laughs> right. of it is like, as we enter into relationships with folks, we kind of go deeper and deeper into the heart of the community. Honestly, I feel like as we, if you're doing that, say, imagine you're in your neighborhood, your next door neighbor is a good upstanding citizen. They invite you to dinner. You say, yes, there's a block party, you know, them connections are being built. Eventually by the time you get into the sphere of the drug dealer down the street, that they're inviting you to your house, their house. A lot of things have been established. Your reputation has been established in the community. Your faith has probably been established at that point. You've built some level of relationship with your neighbors that like, you know, if this is a safe place or not for you to enter, uh, I, I don't imagine if we were doing this correctly, the way it would happen is you're just in your front yard and some random questionable drug dealer guy from down the street taps on your shoulder and says, hey, you want to go out to dinner with me tonight? Like that just feels <laughs> like, does that ever happen to anybody? Right. So on one hand, yes, boundaries. Uh, 
I think we need to be mindful of not putting ourselves in harm's way needlessly. I think there is part of the Christian ethic. The whole Christian gospel is willing to sacrifice yourself for the right. sake of others. So right. there is a place for sacrificing yourself for that others might have life. But even when Jesus is using language around sick and doctors and things, doctors, medical professionals have boundaries when it comes to their relationship with their right. patients, where right. it's sometimes there's this codependency thing. Sometimes there's a safety thing. There's all these different reasons that your doctor might say, no, I'm not going to do that with you. You know, that kind of thing. So sure, like there's boundaries. I honestly think that the the bigger issue that 95% of us are dealing with is do we have, like we talked about in the sermon, a relationship with our non-believing neighbors or coworkers or, or friends in the community deep enough that they're inviting us into their lives. Because as we look at Jesus in this passage, we know that he's in Matthew's house because God sent him, but he's also in Matthew's house because Matthew invited him. And mm. Matthew invited him because as Jesus extended grace to Matthew, Matthew just felt like, man, this is a great guy. I want my, I want my friends to get to know this guy or they need Jesus too or whatever it is. Uh, but Matthew felt, man, I, I want to bring Jesus into my world. And I think part of the longing I have for our church community as I read a passage like this is that we would build connections with folks outside the church deep enough that they long to invite us into their worlds. And we know that in that moment, uh, we need to go their direction and not keep them at arm's length. Yeah, I do believe that the one phrase that keeps resonating with me, and I don't know if this is true for the church, but uh, what Dave Runyon said and what you reiterated of this trajectory from learning somebody's name on the sidewalk, you know, in passing by to the living room. And you brought out like from the tax booth and just a simple invitation to follow me. Now you're like reclining with them in their living room. And it's like that trajectory. How do we get that trajectory right? And I think that is something worth thinking about. Um, and to the religious leaders looking on as Jesus is engaging in this uh, party, in verse 13, at the beginning, it says, Jesus tells the Pharisees, but go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And man, this has got a sting for the religious leaders because this, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. This rhythm is found all over the place. It's quoted in Hosea 6.6, 6, uh, for I desire mercy, not sacrifice, an acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. So that's the direct quote. But even if you go back, you can see it in 1 Samuel. Uh, Samuel calls out Saul's sin and says the exact same thing. Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? It's all over the Psalms. It's in Proverbs 21. It's to do what is right and just is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. Uh, Isaiah calls it out. Jeremiah calls it out. And it is, in fact, the preface to the famous Micah 6, 8, which talks about God desiring you to act justly and love mercy and walk humbly with your God. If you look before that in verses six and seven, it talks about desiring mercy and not sacrifice. All this to say, it's such a big picture that's been painted throughout the Old Testament. And now it's landing right on the Pharisees. And so how does this deeper understanding of this Old Testament rhythm, this phrase, uh, help us understand what Jesus is after here toward the religious elite of the time. And when you're showing us how many times in the Old Testament this phrase comes up, one of the things that reminds us is the way to look at this is not merely at the words of this verse, right? I think there's 
you know, these religious leaders, they consider their faith a life of sacrifice. And he's like, no, 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 it's a life of mercy giving. It's a life of going towards those in pain, not merely sacrificing yourself and distancing from them. So at a literal level, that's true. But at a contextual level, that phrase almost becomes this slogan that God drops into the lives of the Israelites whenever their religion has become a routine and they've lost connection with the heart of the thing. Right. Because it's, you could read the Old Testament and say, of course God wants sacrifice. <laughs> and of course he wants sacrifices, right? Saul goes up, tries to make a sacrifice to God that's out of bounds. And Samuel's like, what are you doing? That's not what God wants from you. Leave that to the priests. Your job is to be a king who, or whatever who shows mercy. Uh, in Hosea, it's... Listen, or even I think in Isaiah, uh, where he's talking about, is this the kind of fast that I'm looking for? You guys just to be hungry and sad. I want you to actually do something with your faith. The kind of fast I require loosens the bonds of slavery and, and so on. I think this phrase is one of those like eye-opening phrases that says, you're doing your religion wrong. You're walking through the motions. You're acting religious. You're sacrificing all these things for God but you've missed the weightier matters, which is that religion exists to bring people into right relationship with the living God. And there are people in your community who lack right relationship with the living God. And my desire is not that you go and show me how amazing you are. Right. My desire is that you would go towards them and mm -hmm. help them find rescue in me, mm -hmm. which is embodied more than anywhere else in the Bible in the person of Jesus, who is God himself coming and to sacrifice himself for us, to bring us into relationship with God. And, but even in the practice of Jesus, we see him not sacrificing himself from the religious people, but sacrificing his own reputation for, sorry, from the irreligious people, but sacrificing his own reputation with the religious people for the sake of the questionable people. And yeah, breaking down those boundaries in a sense where I think a life of sacrifice is a life of saying, hey, who am I going to allow into my living room? But that's not even the question Jesus is answering. Jesus is saying, if I get invited into somebody else's living room, am I going to go? And he does, because he says the son of man uh, came to seek and save that which was lost, right? They, the sick are who need this doctor, and I can bring this doctor. I am the doctor for them. So um, I think he he's trying to open the eyes of the religious folks to say, you're doing religion wrong. You are missing the heart of it. And you're acting like holier than thou people, but that was never the point. It's almost as if like you're saying Jesus came to sacrifice himself to show that he was great. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but exactly. like underneath it was like this mercy for the sinners, the, the lost. And I, I believe there's something cool about that word mercy, right? Um, hmm. That in Hosea, it's actually um, the hesed, the steadfast love. Yeah, hesed is the Old Testament word, the Hebrew word of the covenant love of God. And it's interesting, you know, if we were just thinking about the covenant love of God in the New Testament, we'd probably pick agape, this idea of like right. the love of God um, that he has for his people. But using this word mercy there to kind of transliterate chesed from the Old Testament, it's a reminder that it, it's it's the covenant love, not just that he has for us as believers, but this love that sends God continuously with forgiveness to those who desperately need it, right? In Hosea, it's God over and over again showing, you always are wandering, but I'm always coming back for you. I'm always inviting you back to myself. It's that kind of covenant love. And so it's the side of God's covenant love that is for the downtrodden, the broken, the sinful, those who need compassion, where God says, my love is for you as well. And that's what God desires, is that we would go out in the world with the same heart that he has for us, recognizing that the reason we know that Jesus befriends questionable people is that Jesus befriended us. 
And so now in return, we go out and we befriend people who are questionable as well and invite them into relationship with him. Yeah. So in the last phrase that Jesus uses, I want to ask you a little bit more deeper on that. Uh, It says, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And that ends the passage of Matthew 9, verses 9 to 13. Uh, The question I had to end the podcast episode was, um, I noticed that in your sermon, you kept bringing up the fact that, hey, Jesus befriended you, right? You're the questionable one. Like you started out as the questionable one. He came to you. uh, He saved you. And now he's calling you to do the same. And I think there's something in here because I I look at the life of Paul, somebody who probably traveled all over the place and did this really well to to be friends of, of all types of people. He says this in First Timothy uh, chapter 1, verse 15, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, like we see here in Matthew 9, of whom I am the foremost. And so I wonder if this realization that we are the sinners that Jesus came to befriend and save uh, is fueling him toward his mission to do the same to others. And so... To close off here, how might a deeper understanding of what Jesus has done already for us fuel this mission to befriend questionable people? I think it's everything. I think I mean you you brought up what Paul said in his uh, in his epistles, just that he recognizes I'm a sinner and I'm going out to call others. I think we can't forget the fact that Matthew was the one writing this account of Matthew's life in Matthew chapter nine, right? This is the account of his own conversion. And so it's funny, if if you're reading it, uh, this happened to me, you know, it says at the end of that passage, I've come not not to call the righteous, but sinners. My brain enters that phrase to repentance, because in the other account of that, that's what Jesus says, I've called not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And it's interesting, Matthew doesn't include those phrases, but it's almost like he doesn't have to, because it's like, he's talking about his own life. Like he's not... We feel like when we're looking at sinners outside of us, we're like, yeah, yeah, go to the parties as long as you're calling them to repentance. With Matthew, he's like, he changed my life. He came, I invited him into my friends' lives, Hmm. obviously to change their lives as well. This idea of the transforming love of Jesus calling us out of our sinfulness is inherent in it because Matthew's telling his own story, that he was in the tax collector's booth when Jesus called him out of it. And then he invited Jesus into his living room and we're assuming so that he might call those sinners out of it because that seems to be the practice of Jesus is entering into the lives of sinful people to pull them out of the miry clay that they're stuck in. And so I think that's, it's so important to remember. I think that's the humility that brings it is if we don't have the humility, then we're just the religious people saying, I hope he's calling people to repentance at that party. But if we're the person who threw the party because we were the sinner that morning, we're just thinking, we know why we're inviting Jesus to the party because our friends need a savior and Jesus is the one who called us. And the thing that's beautiful about Matthew is when he meets Jesus, he realizes Jesus would call someone even like me. And once he realizes Jesus would call someone even like me, he calls everyone he knows that's even like him mm-hmm. and invites them into an interaction with Jesus as well. I was thinking this week of, uh, I think it's on Netflix right now. They just dropped the uh the movie about Calvary Chapel that just came out this summer. Oh, wow. I forget what it's called, but uh, no it's a fantastic uh, movie. I've heard great reviews of it. I haven't actually seen it yet, but I'm going to see it this week. Um, but even in all the previews, or if you know the story of Calvary Chapel, what you see is a, a preacher who feels compelled to bring the gospel to the hippie community and uh, just invites folks to start following Jesus. And as his church starts getting filled with people uh, who 
society has said, stay away from us. We're better than you. All of a sudden, it just starts this compounding effect where friends are inviting friends and they're all coming into the church, into the living rooms of these pastors and church leaders, because what they're realizing is Jesus loves even them. I think when that is caught, that idea that Jesus loves even me and we believe it at a deep level, I think that's when we start to catalyze some of these things when we realize, okay, if Jesus would even call me, I bet he would call that person too. And I think part of the problem with religion, like the religious leaders in this passage, is they have forgotten, right? When they pray, they say, God, thank you that I'm not like these people. But Matthew says, I'm just like these people. Uh, They need Jesus too. And I know Jesus would accept them because he accepted me. And so there's something beautiful about the humility of knowing, um, yeah, while I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. Right. I think it's such a beautiful uh, way to end it because I think first John sums it up really well in 419. We love because he first loved us. And so Pastor Danny, as we go out and uh, befriend questionable people, uh, thanks for the guidance. And uh, we'll be praying for our church community as uh, these miracles start to happen and we get started. We start getting invited into people's living rooms and having these conversations. So Pastor Danny, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me.